The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. It is a fascinating thing to come for breakfast uh, amongst all of you doctors at the CMDS. Uh, morning, doctor. Morning, doctor. Morning, doctor. Doctor. Morning, doctor. Doctor. Morning, doctor. Uh, so good to have so many doctors around who are concerned about health. I'm going to read just a few verses from uh, the third epistle of John this morning. As we conclude our consideration of the priestly calling of the doctor in a broken world. The third epistle of John, it's a very short little letter, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health, as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. I think... uh, The Apostle John here is indicating that the principle of health in our lives grows as we walk in the truth. We grow in the principle of health that is at work now in us as we continue in the truth. And I find it particularly interesting that here the Apostle is concerned for the health, the physical health of the people in the church. I pray, I hope that you are in health just as your soul is in health. If we are going to uh, help people in our calling, in your calling, if you are going to help people in your calling as medical practitioners to be in health, we have to walk in the truth. The truth as it pertains also to Medicine, whether surgeon, general practitioner, dentist, specialist in any given field. I've tried to emphasize, I've tried to encourage you these past few days and remind you that you have a high calling which has to be carried out in terms of God's purposes and God's truth and his purposes in creation. Now, the philosophy which informs the practice of medicine is consequently critical. If we're going to walk in the truth and live in the truth and pursue health in people's lives, the philosophy by which we practice medicine is critical. In the uh, pagan worldview, the doctor or the physician was actually seen as a god or a semi-incarnate agent of the gods like Asclepius, who was the chief god of healing the first uh, Greek god to be accepted into the Roman pantheon, actually. And what this view of healing meant, what this view of medicine meant in antiquity for pagans, was that healing was interwoven, it was interconnected with magic and occultism. And it often involved the use of oracles. So there was a magical and occultic aspect to healing. The pagan and superstitious character of Greek medicine even comes out in the Hippocratic Oath. I'm sure you've all read uh, at some point the Hippocratic Oath, but it's very interesting to notice, although there are some admirable aspects to the Hippocratic Oath, it has a commitment to confidentiality, for example. It seems committed to be actually against abortion and euthanasia, uh, in fact, if uh, would that modern medicine were as committed to those things as the Hippocratic Oath is. Nonetheless, Greek medicine was weakened in its understanding by its chaotic polytheism and its 
superstitious character. This is the beginning of the oath. It reads, I swear by Apollo the healer, by Asclepius, by health and by all the powers of healing and call to witness all the gods and goddesses that I may keep this oath and promise to the best of my ability and judgment. So the pagan doctor was actually binding themselves by oath to be a representative of the gods. And this led to very unrealistic expectations of doctors, as you can imagine. After all, they had the power of the gods. They were semi-incarnate gods. They were representing all the powers, the latent powers of healing. So if a patient wasn't healed, it was often thought that it represented ill will or negligence on the part of these agents of the gods because as representatives of the gods, they should be able to do pretty much as they will. Why why was I not healed if this is done in the name of Asclepius and all the powers of healing? This led to an idea of total liability for the physician. Often there were cases where a physician was threatened with the loss of their hand, even their life, if they failed to heal. If you represent God, the gods, then you have the liability of a god. The Greek gods, of course, were not uh, God in the, uh, in the way that we speak of God. They were heroes. They were divinized people. And as I pointed out in our lunchtime discussion yesterday, for Greek philosophy, deity meant nature, not the transcendent God of the Bible, not an infinite personal being. Pliny said deity only means nature. And so there was a naturalism or a materialism that was inherent in pagan philosophy that defined its understanding of medicine. A hero or a physician might be able to command or manipulate nature by their craft. They had an influence over nature by their secret knowledge, their skill. It's often overlooked that the, uh, the most famous Greek philosophers like Plato and Aristotle were very esoteric in their beliefs. They were very superstitious. They believed they had a secret knowledge, a secret access to nature. There was no transcendent God in this philosophy, and so it was the physician's participation in and manipulation of nature that made them demigods. And it also meant they had this liability of supermen if they failed. Now, this is important, because in the Christian view, no man or woman has total liability. Or total responsibility. Total liability and total responsibility belongs to God alone. Our powers of healing, however gifted you may be as a surgeon or as a doctor, are very limited. We can ask the living God to heal, but if God does not act supernaturally, we are limited to the best observations, the best treatments that diligent study can give to us. We are not able to manipulate reality and perform miracles. I know some of your patients expect you to, but it is not possible for you. You can do your best, and you can do no more. Now, criminal negligence is one thing. Uh, Human fallibility is another. And today, doctors are facing incredible litigious risks And you must be conscious of this. Doctors are often afraid to intervene or do things. I mean, many people, even just in public, are reluctant to help people who are injured or suffering in a restaurant or choking, or they think they might get sued by somebody if they do something wrong. So the litigious risks in modern medicine are largely due to the resurgent paganism of our age in the form of materialism. And we have seen a massive resurgence of occultism in the last 50 years. I mean, when Blockbuster actually had some video stores open, you could go through the, uh, 
uh, the shelves and the most popular movies are occultic. The most popular television shows concern the occult. And because of this, and I, I'm going to explain why in, in a moment, we've seen a colossal resurgence of malpractice suits against doctors. Now, why is this? Well, rationalistic materialism and occultism have always grown together in uh, Western history. When there's been a resurgence of materialism and naturalism, there has always been a resurgence with it of occultism. In a so-called scientific age, people today are utterly fascinated with everything paranormal and occult. And that is because if there is no transcendent God... No creator God, no redeemer. The only hope in history is our manipulation and control of the powers of nature. If there is no power from above, power is sought from below. This is completely logical. Our only hope, for most people, their only hope, the only world is this world, the only hope is in somehow the physicist, the physician, manipulating the powers of nature. And this has led to the proliferation and resurgence of all manner of alternative therapies today, from acupuncture to homeopathy, osteopathy, various forms of Freudian-inspired psychotherapies, various forms of meditation and so on. These are occultic. Freud was an occultist. So was Jung. If nature is, in fact, the co-discoverer of DNA, of, um, not DNA, the co-discoverer of uh, the alleged mechanism of evolution, uh, Wallace became one of Britain's, he presented with Darwin to the Royal Society, and became Britain's leading occultist. That's completely logical as well. If nature is the only God, then there is only the expert physician who can manipulate those powers, and knowledge is power in this worldview. The students of Plato and Aristotle were very concerned that their learning should be kept secret from the general public so that they could exercise the power of philosopher kings, so that they could use their knowledge to manipulate and control. And so the demand for people today from you, from medicine, is a total and impossible competence. It's one of the reasons I don't go to the doctor that often, because I don't want to burden them with things that they really can't do anything about anyway. I'm just getting a bit older. If the doctor and the therapist fail to heal me then, people think, well, they must have been negligent. They must have been incompetent, and they're liable. This leads to greater and greater expectations, which means greater and greater controls over medicine, which means more and more legislation to ensure that patients get all the benefits and doctors all the penalties in the Ministry of Health. Now, when Christianity entered the mainstream of history, things began to Change. There was a new emphasis on learning, on teaching, on knowledge, as well as on healing. And instead of doctors being perceived as magicians and the physicians of Greek philosophy, the doctor became more like a rabbi or pastor coming alongside to care, to treat, to help, not as a demigod able to exercise power and control over a person and over nature, but rather as a minister, as a servant, to care, not simply to cure. And this emphasis on knowledge, on righteousness, and on human dignity as men and women made in the image of God, not God's, but made in God's image, this began, this view of human beings made under God, in God's image, as God's vice-regents, Christians then saw themselves as instructed by God's word to love those who are also made in the image of God and to seek their health, as John says. These were the basic principles that governed Christian care. However, 
It took a long time, if you know your history of medicine, to, for the Western world to shake free from many of the assumptions of pagan medicine and the esoteric beliefs of Greek medicine. It's true that the Greeks had a certain interest in anatomy. They had a certain interest in observation. Their story isn't all bad. But Greek medical doctrines were philosophical and esoteric beliefs, philosophies that governed how they pursued medicine, pursued medicine, and these persisted for a millennia in various forms. It was largely due to the work of Galen, who was born in 129 AD. He was the son of a wealthy architect. His father had a dream in which Asclepius came to him, he said. And he decided to direct his son from there on in, in the direction of medicine. And some of his distinctive medical views included the idea that there were vital animal spirits in the arteries, and that fever was due to an imbalance of the four humors. And he took the uh, Platonic doctrines of a threefold division of the soul, a philosophical idea, and he applied it to medicine and to the anatomy and to bodily functions, And he sought to bring together the ideas of Greek philosophy and anatomy with logic, and he thought this gave him an explanation for everything. He thought he'd kind of arrived at a a, a universal understanding, a kind of grand unified theory of the human person. In fact, he said this, and I quote, It is I and I alone who have revealed the true path of medicine, end quote. That was Galen. This was the kind of arrogance of of Greek philosophy. A viable scientific method, though, that could lead to development in medicine was now in the possession of the Christian church because of the premises of Scripture. And the medieval scholastics, men like Roger Bacon, began to pioneer a scientific method. Roger Bacon was a 13th century English philosopher. He was also a Franciscan friar who emphasized the careful study of nature through empirical research, and he's usually credited as one of the earliest European advocates of the modern scientific method. And his work was built on by uh, such uh, notaries as Galileo, Francis Bacon, Isaac Newton, and others who were all Christians. Now, these people, these Bible-believing scientists, understood uh, that what was stated in Psalm 19, that the heavens declare the glory of God, his order, his purposes, and that laws and the statutes of the Lord are perfect and trustworthy, and that we are called to know God and know his works in natural revelation. As such, the first and great and enduring universities were all Christian institutions at Padoe, Bologna, Oxford, Paris. This is where the great schools of medicine began, where these ideas began to be spread. They spread across the continent of Europe and progressively over the whole world, which gave us eventually our modern, well, what is supposed to be evidence-based medicine. Now, the word science itself, as you know, comes from the Latin word to know. And one of the ways we come to know things is through the scientific method or the inductive method. Induction, evidence, experiment, repeatable events, and so forth. This, of course, doesn't give us certitude. Uh, The inductive method never gives certainty. It gives us high and low probabilities. We can, we can seek to understand the world, but as soon as a contrary instance of, of our, our inductive uh, conclusion is found, of course, the house falls. Uh, if I say that uh, um, all swans are white because my exposure to swans has only led me to see white ones, I only need to see a black swan fly one day, fly into my picnic, and my whole inductive certitude about the character and nature of swans is pulled down, isn't it? So we never get certainty from the empirical method, but we do have uh, a process of hypothesis and prediction and testing that actually comes out of the principles of Scripture. 
Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 through 21, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Paul uh, did not expect people, even in the church, to just believe what they heard. He says, test everything, examine it. He said to Timothy, think over what I say, so that the Lord might give you understanding in all things. God says, come, let's reason together. Now, of course, um, uh, I'm not suggesting that um, there is a carefully delineated scientific method in the prophetic literature of the Bible, but the facts of creation and prophecy tell us that God governs all things. Totally. That his providence and his sovereignty governs all things and guarantees the consistency of cause-effect relationships. When he said to Noah, there will be from now on seed time and harvest... And the seasons, that, was a prob- that is about the trustworthiness of the word of God. The only reason we can do science is because God is trustworthy. He's consistent. He's faithful. And he does govern all of the variables. That's why we can uh, fire rockets into space and land things on the moon. Because God's word, God's laws govern consistently. Actually, in pagan, the cacophony of pagan philosophy, you could have guaranteed no such consistency. The gods are capricious, arbitrary. But it wasn't until the 16th century that the medical chemistry of the, um, a man who's been called a, a medical Protestant, von Hottenheim, that a reformation of uh, medicine was underway and we started to cut ourselves away from this ridiculous homage to uh, the assumptions of Greek medicine that persisted for a long time. As uh, the medical historian Porter has said, this about uh, von Hottenheim, uh, his commitment, or Hottenheim, I don't know whether I've got the pronunciation right, forgive me, His commitment to the discovery of truth through observation and experiment was a breath of fresh air, and it became the inspiration of the new medicine emerging in the scientific revolution, stirring about the time of his death. And he was followed by Van Helmont, H-E-L-M-O-N-T, apostrophe S, who made headway by rejecting the Galenic elements and humors He said they were empty verbiage. He wasn't himself free from some magical elements, though I have to say he had some fairly bizarre uh, occultic ideas himself. A lot of these men did. They were trying to do careful research and experimentation, but they were still governed by some fairly wacky ideas at times. Uh, But in the 17th century, along came a Christian doctor called William Harvey. And you all know that he demonstrated, the, finally, the circulation of the blood. So don't drain it out of somebody when they're dying would be a good start. Harvey believed in the authority of the Bible and in the deity of Jesus Christ. And he said that this motivated his work. He said his search for purpose in nature, for a scientific method, was the result of God's wisdom and God's order And modern medicine never looked back after this. So that's a thumbnail sketch. What about today? Today, despite our journey from paganism, despite the influence of the Christian faith on medicine, we are returning to pagan vision of medicine. A naturalistic materialism that denies the creator God of Scripture, denies a supervening order, has returned with a vengeance. Now, of course, I'm not suggesting that the doctors aren't still borrowing from the Christian worldview. They are. This is what all uh, non-believing men and women must do. They are intellectually schizophrenic. They must practice like a Christian and talk like a heathen. You can't go into a laboratory or into a hospital and actually practice medicine consistently and responsibly in terms of pagan philosophy, in terms of naturalistic materialism. Because on such a view, there is no guarantee that the present will be like the past or that the future will be like the present. We assume that there is an order, that there are laws 
that these are consistent. Now, of course, you have philosophers who try and say, well, maybe there are untold billions of universes out there, and they're all operating with different laws. That's magic. The beliefs of modern, many modern physicists in this area is just magic. It's just occultism. I've read uh, scientists saying that uh, when our sun goes nova, we will escape through a hatch in the universe into another dimension. Or we will put another sun in the solar system. Because man thinks he's a god. There is no overarching purpose, order, and design in the religious commitment of our age in medicine. And this means that even though the inductive method doesn't produce certain truth, and medicine, and this is not an insult, uh, brothers and sisters, is a soft science in that it is changing. It's not definitive. Because it's based on induction, it is a soft science, not mathematics. Even there, there are questions now with the new math. Let's not go there. But the contemporary demigods of modern medicine are making these grand pronouncements today again about truths of nature that are starting to be applied in hospitals, in surgeries, in pharmacies to the detriment of people's health. We're being told that there are seven genders. University students in my church are being taught at the university that there are seven gender identities. We have the I don't want to offend any psychiatrist here. The gong show of mental health practices today. We are, not that you are practicing in terms of a pagan gong show. I'm saying that this is what it's becoming. We have, as we've heard already this morning, abortion. Those are just three examples of the way health is being damaged with an anti-Christian philosophy of medicine. Naturalistic materialism has become the dominant philosophy of medicine. It directs the killing of the unborn. It wants to euthanize the elderly. It's redefining uh, sexuality and gender and operates to affect the changes. In other words, gender is a social construct as well. We can manipulate nature and make people into something the opposite of what they actually are. It promotes homosexuality. It promotes promiscuity. It advocates increasingly infanticide. It medicates healthy children for anything from sadness to shyness to rambunctiousness. And markets an endless array of questionable chemicals by which people are reduced to little more than biochemical machines. And you're under pressure by the pharmaceutical companies and the intellectuals to prescribe an ever-changing array of chemicals to fix people. And the latest is always best for pharmaceutical companies, right? And they always cost more, too. This is all because we have, governing our ideas, a blind evolutionary process and merely social conditioning to govern our thinking about medicine. This is the return of the Greek doctrine. The ancient Greeks were themselves naturalistic evolutionists. And this idea has led to medical mistakes. I think there's one very good example. About 98% of the DNA in, our, in the nuclei of our cells does not consist of genes. This non-coding DNA was written off by the intellectuals as junk, as leftovers from an alleged evolutionary past. Now it turns out that this DNA seems to play a critical role in whether genes are active or not. So that molecular biologist, one of the world's leading figures in genetics today, John Mattick, has said that, and I quote, the failure to recognize the implications of the non-coding DNA will go down as the biggest mistake in the history of molecular biology, end quote. So you can see that naturalistic, materialistic assumptions do lead to and can lead to significant scientific and medical mistakes. 
When we think about the human person in terms of evolutionary behaviorism, how are we going to treat emotional problems in people? This naturalistic and Darwinian thought and mechanism contributes, I would argue, nothing to medical care. One of our uh, EICC writers, Dr. Carl Percival, as a medical doctor, he said this in our latest journal, which if you sign up, will come to your door in a week or so's time. He says this, I am and have been an anesthesiologist in private practice for over 30 years. For more than 20 years, I've been practicing in a small to medium-sized city in the central coast of California. I am fond of saying that if anyone believes that our civilization or society's healthcare system is truly the product of a Darwinian mechanism, then all he or she must do to be disabused of this notion is to spend a night or two with me on call at the hospital. We routinely devote our hours and precious resources to caring for those who, from a Darwinian point of view, should least survive. These folks would be the most obvious members to cull from the herd, according to a Darwinian perspective. They are drug addicts who have, been inf- who have infected themselves with dirty needles, participants in gang fights, the very old, the very young, or the very sick, without much prospect of a good long-term prognosis, and most, if not all of these, without the means to pay for their services. No, certainly from a Darwinian outlook, these folks are not fit and should be left to die, particularly the ones who have not yet attained or still have reproductive ability, because that's the way Darwinian evolution works. Darwin states, quote, we may feel sure that any variation in the least degree injurious would be rigidly destroyed, end quote. Were this true, we surely would not squander our valuable resources on individuals who possess these injurious traits, yet we do just that. Furthermore, we actually go very much out of our way to make sure that those who are not the fittest do survive. And we try the hardest for those who are are individuals of our same species. These actualities, that is, this lack of struggle with members of our own species and the preservation of these injurious traits are precisely the antithesis of Darwin's prediction. I would go on to say that Darwin's predictions are incorrect about humanity in general, but suffice it to say that the Darwinian mechanism certainly is not the basis of our health care. Without a Christian basis for medical ethics and medical practice, we increasingly find that the technocrats of materialism say, if we can, we will. And this means that a gap opens up between the science of medicine and the practice of medicine. What is practiced is then often not backed by reliable science at all, and we return to a techno-magical vision of healing that is not undergirded by the Word of God and is not undergirded by sound scientific and medical practices. People wander into your surgery and demand a chemical pill to cure every ill, even for viruses, which, I'm reliably informed, do not respond to antibiotics. And yet, patients continue to insist that you must write them a prescription for such. Now people demand a pill for everything, from sadness or unhappiness. I've read that uh, at the rate antidepressants are being prescribed by doctors, they will be the number one prescription, more than antibiotics, in the next 15 to 20 years. And we're convinced by these pharmaceutical companies to buy into this medicalization of society, this latest is best theory of medicine. I think I mentioned yesterday that millions of children in North America are on Ritalin and other antipsychotics at younger and younger ages. Now, I don't want to drift too far from my area of expertise. I've already done that. But uh, let me um, also mention some surgical procedures that are somewhat questionable. Tonsillectomies and hysterectomies are performed for reasons which medical science has no reliable indications. At times it's necessary, but at other times it isn't. 
Expensive, numerous, unnecessary tests are given to women during pregnancy, usually just to identify a defective baby. I have to say that I recall when Jenny was pregnant with our second, Hannah, and we went to, the, to have the ultrasound, and her nurse was trying to persuade us to have various tests, and I unfortunately gave her short thrift because I knew what she was driving at. All the while, the soft science of medicine is constantly changing, and yet the, uh, the media certainly gives people a way overblown impression of medicine's ability today to cure. It's dramatically overstated. In the early 1970s, a low-fiber diet was recommended for intestinal problems. Now, a high-fiber diet is recommended for the same condition. Cancer treatments are changing by the week. I've become something of a mini-expert for uh, personal reasons, as I read paper after paper on treatments for breast cancer. Coronary artery bypass surgery has been shown to be effective in only a narrowly defined entity. Is that right, uh, Dr. Bentley-Taylor? Yet hundreds of thousands of these operations are performed as supposedly life-saving procedures. So I've read. Don't blame me. You can shoot the source. I'll tell you who it was later. Yet uh, sodium bicarbonate used to be the front-runner for cardiac resuscitation. Now it's avoided. And I could go on and on with various illustrations of how in the last few years, in the last 30 years, thinking has changed about the effectiveness of different operations, the necessity of different treatments, the types of drugs that are effective or not effective. The point is that when we speak of modern medicine and its achievements, the science of medicine and the practice of medicine are not the same thing. They are governed, both of them, by a philosophy of medicine which is always worldview dependent. Now, our technology has certainly increased. I'm not doubting that for a moment. And I'm not criticizing the advances of modern medicine. There have been advances, many advances in the area of our diagnostic ability in our knowledge of physiology are dramatically increased. But really in our ability to control serious disease, the effects of aging and so forth. I mean, so many people go to the doctor... And they're just getting old. There's nothing wrong with you. You're just old. And that's okay to be getting old. That's, you've got a bit of back pain. You've got a bit of this. You've got a bit of, no, you don't need meditation or acupuncture. You're just 70. Because we are not able to control all of these factors. We're not magicians. We don't manipulate and control nature. Even with respect to uh, life expectancy and the increases that we've seen over the past 150 years, some have argued, like Dr. Leonard Sagan, that these increases increases are not really down to antibiotics or advances in technology, but down to, uh, to public health differences, social changes and transformations that have taken place, as valuable as antibiotics are. As perhaps the easiest target, and I I certainly don't want to to target uh, mental health professionals. I've already been uh, told off by one this weekend. Not told off, just we had a gentle conversation. Um, uh, There can be a very uh, easy identification of a disconnect between science and its practice. Do we really have a well-established idea of the human mind? Now, if you're a materialist, you're a naturalist, there's no such thing as the human spirit. There is no such thing as true ethics. There is no connection between sin and your mental condition. So if you are a materialist practicing mental health, then, of course, you are very limited in how you can actually approach solving people's problems. And so we enter there a bewildering world of confusion, And and I'm present company accepted, of course. Quackery and contradiction. I watched an interesting um, program 
with a whole raft of uh, psychiatry professionals in Europe discussing a number of new childhood disorders. Usually we used to think that a smack and being sent to your bedroom was enough. Now it's a mental disorder that they have when they can't behave or sit still for five minutes. And they couldn't even agree on what symptoms present to the psychologist or the psychiatrist. Never mind this proliferation of identification of numerous ills. Now, clearly, when people's emotions run so wild that they are going to harm themselves or they're in hysterics, medication, I grant, is needed often to quiet them. And there are doubtless organic problems with real brain disease that are an issue. But we are moving into an area where our philosophy of medicine, our philosophy of the human person, is leading to seeing the human being as a biochemical machine. And we speak of chemical imbalances and trying to correct these. In fact, oftentimes we create them with the drugs that, in some cases, give children a slow lobotomy. If there was ever a desperate need for biblical teaching, counseling, and responsible science today, it must be in the area of emotional health with this proliferation of prescription for sadness or depression and anxiety disorders. Is it not the case that many of our emotional problems and our mental problems are the result of sinful thought and behavior? Ungodly lifestyles. Man is not a medical, a biological machine that can be fixed with a chemical solution for every problem. And then, of course, as I close, there is the indescribable horror of abortion that's dictated by our modern philosophy of medicine. The murderous stories uh, that can be read weekly in the presses in Europe and North America are very difficult to discuss. One of them most recently I was reading was about live babies, twins, born live, being brought to fetal technicians for dissection in a pan. Doctors puncturing the hearts of children born live. Nurses unable to cope with being in the room reporting it later. This is surely the most unforgivable abuse of the medical profession and the calling of a doctor that one can imagine. You may have read about the controversial paper in the Journal of Medical Ethics by Dr. Alberto Guibellini and Francesca Minerva. I'm just going to read you the abstract and the conclusion of their paper. This is the abstract. Abortion is largely accepted even for reasons that do not have anything to do with fetus health. By showing that, one, both fetuses and newborns do not have the same moral status as actual persons, two, the fact that both are potential persons is morally irrelevant, and three, adoption is not always in the best interest of actual people, the authors argue that what we call afterbirth abortion, killing a newborn, should be permissible in all the cases where abortion is, including cases where the newborn is not disabled. Now, that is the abstract. Now, you notice that people without, these are materialists, without a criteria for any moral judgment in a material, the materialist has no basis for any ethical judgment. There are no ethics that... Tra- the mind is merely a biochemical machine. There are no ethical truths. There are no logical truths. It's just the way your chemicals shake down. Uh, I've often said to atheists in debate on this that uh, uh, we may as well just shake two pop cans and whichever one fizzes the most wins because there is no, there is no such thing as mind or ethics that transcend the biology of a human individual. They have no basis for transcendent ethical moral judgments, yet they are ready to deny personhood to human beings. Hitler, 1939. This is exactly the language that the Nazis used. It's a language that was used to justify kidnapping and enslavement of people. They are non-persons. 
One man starts to arbitrarily define who persons are. Once we do that, once human beings start to do that, then anything is possible. This is their conclusion. If criteria such as the costs, social, psychological, economic, for the potential parents are good enough reasons for having an abortion, even when the fetus is healthy, if the moral status of the newborn is the same as that of the infant, and if neither has any moral value by virtue of being a potential person, then the same reasons which justify abortion should also justify the killing of the potential person when it is at a stage of a newborn. Two considerations need to be added, they say. First, we do not put forward any claim about the moment at which afterbirth abortion would no longer be permissible. And we do not think that, in fact, more than a few days would be necessary for doctors to detect any abnormality in the child. In cases where the afterbirth abortion were requested for non-medical reasons, we do not suggest any threshold as it depends on the neurological development of newborns, which is something that neurologists and psychologists would be able to assess, really. Second, we do not claim that afterbirth abortions are good alternatives to abortions. Abortions at an early stage are the best option for both psychological and physical reasons. However, if a disease has not been detected during the pregnancy, if something went wrong during the delivery, or if economic, social, or psychological circumstances change such that taking care of the offspring becomes an unbearable burden on someone, then people should be given the chance of not being forced to do something they cannot afford. So you have here now the logical advocacy of basically just killing babies. And they're not suggesting even a time limit on the execution of children. Now this is the logic of materialism in our culture. And I am done. None of these suggestions or developments in our culture, I'm saying, are random. They are a consistent expression of a philosophy of life called paganism, of knowledge called humanism, and of medicine, naturalistic materialism, that has re-emerged in our time. And many new bioethical challenges confront us in our historic moment. We have to wake up to this. We have to wake the church up to this. We have to wake colleagues up to this, to the reality that they must think through again what it means to begin again as medical professionals, we need a Christian renaissance in medicine. We need a Christian vision again of health and medical care, and it's your job to do it. It's your job to do it. Great challenges lie ahead. Instead of worshipping at the altar of modern medicine, which has become an idol blindly followed by many, we need to recover a biblical vision of the doctor as a priest, caring, not just curing his patients because cures are limited. Modern technology is not man's savior in a fallen world. Jesus Christ is. And the priests of our age... The materialistic technocrats are offering a false gospel to remake man in their own image, to redefine it in terms of their utopian dreams. There's nothing wrong with technology, but what we do with technology matters. Just because we can do a thing doesn't mean we should. The early church took up a theological starting point for medicine. And we need again to rebuild a theology and science of medicine from a Christian point of view. Christian medical professionals and doctors need to recover and rebuild a biblical vision of care and healing that addresses the whole person on the basis of biblical principles, solid science, and responsible research. We should be the best researchers, the best doctors, the best pharmacists, the best psychologists. The best psychiatrists. Because Christian medical professionals are recovering their priestly role to teach, treat, and to care. We have to base medicine on this, not on pharmaceutical greed. And we must recognize that we are Christians, physicians, Christian doctors, 
who care and cure, not pseudo-magicians who dole out uh, arbitrary treatments. The Christian church has to help you as Christian medical professionals to take your place as those advancing the kingdom of God by bringing health and wholeness to people's lives in terms of the purposes, law, and design of God. I haven't really given you many answers of how to do that, but I am wanting to say there's no Q&A now and there's no question time, so I want to leave you with this question to think about. I wrote four down, but I'm just going to give you one. Well, let me give you the last two. Since medicine is a soft science and constantly changing, how can we ensure or work toward best practices that resists the tyranny of novelty? Since medicine is a soft science and constantly changing, how can we ensure or work towards best practices that resist the tyranny of novelty? And lastly, since the godlessness of modern medicine, which is state-controlled, has become an aspect of politics. And that's part of the problem today, of course. Medicine has been politicized. Uh, abortion issues are political football, as are gender issues. Since the godlessness of modern medicine, state-controlled, has become an aspect of politics, what can Christians do to begin a renaissance of Christian medical care. I think somebody said to me recently that Dr. Patrick here has suggested that we need a parallel system. Well, I think we do need a renaissance of Christian medicine and Christian medical philosophy. I don't know what that's going to take for the future. That's your job to answer that. I just start fires. I don't stoke them. That's your task. So uh, I would really encourage you to be thinking about that because I think this is what it's going to take in our generation now to rebuild a vision of what it means to be a priest unto God as a doctor. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.